The Bob Murphy Show, episode 197. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy Hey everyone, welcome to yet another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. Today I'm going to be talking with David Beckworth. Let me first read his official bio and then I'll explain what we're talking about in this interview. So David Beckworth is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and a former international economist at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. He's the author of Boom and Bust Banking, The Causes and Cures of the Great Recession. His research focuses on monetary policy, and his work has been cited by the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, New York Times, Bloomberg Business Week, and The Economist. He has advised congressional staffers on monetary policy and has written for Barron's, Investors Business Daily, The New Republic, The Atlantic, and National Review. David is the host of the weekly Macro Musings podcast. So uh, what we are talking about, to give you more background, so David is very familiar with the Austrian school and their, particularly their approach to monetary matters. And he's familiar with the sort of internecine battles we have on, on the free banking issue. And he's really big on NGDP targeting. And so as you folks know, I don't often have someone on for the purpose of debating because I, I just, I don't think this is the right format for that. Or if it is, then we'll, we'll explicitly set it up that way, but it's rare because with, with David, I thought it would be more useful and helpful to you folks to just have him explain a lot of this stuff just so you understand the framework from the perspective of a true believer, all right, as opposed to coming from me where I would try my best to summarize it, but sort of like I did with when I had Warren Mosler on talking about MMT. So to be clear, I am much closer to David Beckworth's views than I am to Warren Mosler's, but nonetheless, it's the same approach here where I just want to give him a chance to lay out his conception of these issues. So we do get into stuff about so-called average inflation targeting and how is that similar to NGP targeting and then this floor versus corridor issue that George Selgin has, has raised in particular. And, uh, and then also we do talk about MMT. And so, you know, that, that's a way that David can perhaps win you over just to show, hey, this guy's not half bad. He's against the MMT camp. So without further ado, here is my discussion on monetary issues with David Beckworth. Well, David, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thank you for having me on, Bob. So why don't we uh, take a minute and can you explain your background and how you got into this stuff? Because I want my listeners to realize that you're, you're familiar with the Austrian framework. And so can you just tell us when did you want to become an economist? And then how did you hook up with this character named George Selgin? Yeah, so I wasn't an econ undergrad at all, but I took you know some business classes and I had the opportunity to take principles of macro and micro, and they really resonated with me. So I was back working on an MBA and I had the chance to do some more you know, graduate classes and it just really clicked. And, and I finally said, okay, I want to do this for a living. I, it never dawned on me you could be an economist as a career. This wasn't on my radar, but in gra- mm-hmm. my MBA program, it, it did click. And I ended up going to the University of Georgia for my PhD program. 
And I'll have to admit, I, hey, I didn't Dave, have can to, I ask you, did you want to yes. be a professor or did you want to like work in industry or, you know what I mean? Like when you said you could do it as a career, what, what did that mean to you when you decided? I was thinking of an academic career at the time. Okay. Mm-hmm. In fact, I will even say this. I, I saw myself teaching like at a liberal arts school with a, you know, a little vest and jacket and, you know, so, some romantic ideal that, of course, was totally different when I got there. But that was my vision. And I just really enjoyed the, you know, thinking about the world's problems through the lens of economics and what it offered. And I ended up going to the University of Georgia. And I, I really, I, I was living in Atlanta at the time. I didn't have a good criteria. I did not think through, go to the best school. I just picked a bunch of schools nearby. I visited them. I liked the campus in Athens, mm-hmm. which is, a, you know, I would not recommend this, you know, decision process to anyone else. But it worked out great because who was there? George Selgin and Larry White, two mm-hmm. great monetary economists. And uh, that's where I first got into my understanding of monetary economics. So they were both teaching a, a sequence of monetary economics, and I had some other classes from them as well. That was my introduction to uh, monetary economics. Okay. And they were, so you took classes from them as a PhD student? Yes. Okay. Okay. And then we were talking before we started recording here. Can you tell, so how, what? What were you grappling with? And then how did you get into the the world of George Selgin? So I was a first year grad student. And at the time, it was the late 90s, there was the big stock market boom that was going on at the time. You know, if you recall, I think it was mid to late 90s, Alan Greenspan talked about irrational exuberance. Mm -hmm. So this had been going on for a few years. Conversation, what's behind this? What's, What's driving this big surge in asset prices, particularly the stock market? And so I was intrigued as well, and I had been reading some Austrian literature, and I came across the Alchian and Klein paper on the ideal price index, which includes asset prices. I know you've talked a lot about this, and it's one of your favorite papers, or one of the ones you really like. And, and I said, man, this is a great idea. I totally got it. You know, intertemporal substitution, asset prices are a way to think about that, so they should be included. So I said, you know, if this makes sense, we should have, you know, the Fed target some better measure of uh, prices. Any event, I was thinking about that and I ran into George Selgin in the hallways. I was just a you know, first year grad student and I, I said, hey, Dr. Selgin, what do you think of this article? And, and he liked the article, but he said, David, that's a very tough idea to implement in practice. We have a, we, you know, enough challenges as it is with regular price indices. Imagine trying to do this one. I think there's a better way that kind of cuts directly to the problem. And that is making sure monetary policy responds appropriately to productivity shocks. And this is where he introduced his book, Less Than Zero and the Productivity Norm. And, and essentially, you don't respond to productivity booms. I mean, that's a key part of his argument. You, you allow them to manifest themselves in a lower price level. And conversely, if you had you know, negative total factor productivity growth, you'd, you'd see maybe some higher prices. But his point was, you know, the, the Fed is contributing to the boom, by trying to offset these productivity surges we had in the late 90s. And it really resonated with me. And so that's where I I first saw nominal GDP targeting because the productivity norm is a version of that. So my first foray into nominal GDP targeting was how we deal with or how do we avoid asset booms when we have these productivity surges. Okay, let me, just for the benefit of people who aren't trained economists, paraphrase some of what you just said and then obviously correct me, David, if I misspeak. So the... Normally, like right now, when people talk about, oh, the CPI index came out and inflation last year was whatever, 1.8%. 
there they're talking about some version of the consumer price index, which looks at you know goods and services that households would buy. It doesn't include asset prices. So if the stock market went up 30%, nobody says, oh, last year inflation was something, you know, that doesn't contribute at all to it. And even if the price of real estate goes up, is this true, David, that they do include in the CPI some measure of like rental prices? For yeah, there's some rental housing prices in there. So, so if the cost of renting an apartment go, or even renting a house for that matter goes up, that gets included in quote, the cost of living the way you know, the government reports it. But if just the, to buy a house goes up a lot, right? That, that's construed as, oh, this is good for homeowners, not, wow, it's more expensive, not a lot. And so the Alshian and Klein piece was saying, you know, at a theoretical level, because we don't have an infinite number of markets where you can right now just buy all your commodities and services forward through time until you die, what the rational consumer does or household does is might buy some assets to, to be able to buy stuff 10 years from now. You buy an, And so if everyone's doing that, rising asset prices should be at least in principle construed the same way as like if the can of tuna fish is more expensive at the grocery store or it could be. And so to see is monetary policy running too hot, the fact that this, you know, stock market and real estate markets are booming could mean it is, whereas in the conventional way they were doing it, you know. So then Selgin says, yeah, in theory, that's right, but that's way too hard in, in practice. You don't want the Fed trying to prick asset bubbles because they think the stock market's going too high instead. And is this true that he like said there's good deflation and bad deflation that if the reason prices are falling is because everybody's a lot more productive and producing more stuff. So the same amount of dollars chasing more goods. And that's why prices are falling. That's totally fine. That's consistent with the healthy economy. Yep. And so, you know, the deflation we're worried about, like in the thirties, it was an awful economy and people associate with prices falling, but that's not because everybody got so productive in the thirties. That was right. Because policy was too tight. Yeah. And I would argue Selgin's proposal and the productivity norm is a way to kind of avoid the problem in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, you think of the Alchian Klein index, the horse is already out of the barn. <laughs> you know, right, if, right. You, if you see this big boom, I mean, you're going to have to prick an asset price. And then that's, again, that's a lot of art, not much science to that. And so if you can prevent it from happening in the first place, I think that's mm-hmm. a better path to take. Okay, great. And so maybe I don't want to focus on the NGDP targeting because I know we, we sure. talked about some other things, but just since you brought up and since that is such a huge thing, Maybe can you just explain what that like? First of all, what is NGDP, and then like what what is it yeah. to target that? So in GDP, which I am known for, is nominal GDP. It's is the dollar value of final goods and services produced in the economy, of course, in some period. So it's it you can think of GDP, but not adjusted for inflation. And another way, I, I like to think of it more broadly as it's you know, the amount of dollar activity going on inside an economy, how much total spending. Mm-hmm. It's what we actually observe. We don't observe real GDP. That's a, that's a constructed measure. And so nominal GDP targeting says, look, try to stabilize that. Try to stabilize total spending. And so if you do that, you don't have to worry about all the micro problems. I, mean, one of the, I don't want to get into all the arguments for doing it, but one simple illustration is if you, if you focus on total spending, total money use, you, you can avoid all the hyper-focus on the latest inflation numbers mm-hmm. or what treasury yields are doing. There, there's, it's almost like a, a hyper-monetary you know, monetary policy focus. And I'm guilty of this too. I, let me be clear. I, I'm guilty of it too. But it, if you can just focus on spending and allow prices to adjust based on productivity and, and everything else going on underneath the hood 
of the economy, I think it, it would pull back the Fed's involvement and just kind of keep it focused on one simple measure. So that's there's more arguments for nominal GDP targeting, but that's it in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. In again, for the the non-specialist here or the people who don't spend their days reading econ log and all that. When when the press report, you know, the government normally when they say, ah, last quarter GDP grew at a 3.2% rate, there they actually mean real GDP. They're, they're say, that's yeah. their way of, you know, subject to all the caveats and whatever. They're trying to show like how much more physical stuff was produced. So the way in practice or one way to think about it is if people spent 10% more dollars buying things this year than last year, but prices in general for those types of things went up by 4%, then really the real increase in output was only 6%. Yes. You know, well, obviously yes. arithmetic and people know that I'm, I'm rounding. But you're, you're saying rather than try to focus on the quote real increase, like no, just look at the actual observed empirical, how much more yeah. spending on stuff, final yeah, and, and services. Yeah, and it's also, it's nominal GDP targeting is a recognition that, you know, there's only so much that we know. I mean, you would probably critique it even more, but... You know, we, we don't know what's happening in real time. It's just there's a knowledge problem here. And we're, we're kind of acknowledging that. Look, we, we just don't know what's happening to potential GDP at any point in time. Um, so we're going to step back. And, you know, given we have a Federal Reserve, this is what I would like to see done. Of course, it's a whole different story whether it ever happens. Okay. I'm going to call an audible, David, be, before we said we would do the MMT thing first. But since we're talking about NGDP, maybe we should just go into the... Infl- average inflation sure, targeting sure. since it's the same kind of train of thought. Yeah, okay, so so folks, just for the listeners, we're going to cover three things that David has recently been writing on and debating. Okay, so the first one is the Fed somewhat recently, you know, explained to us the exact timeline, but they announced formally that they're switching the way they're going to approach inflation targeting. Yes, yeah, so last year they announced, August, in fact, they announced they're going to go to an average inflation target Whereas before they had just an ordinary inflation target. Now, to be clear, they, they always they still have a dual mandate and they did before. So, you know, technically by law, they're supposed to focus on you know inflation and full employment, which would be, you know, minimize the business cycle. But their focus on inflation has changed dramatically, at least on paper. We can talk about how credible this is. But in the past, just to, what's the, so what's the difference? In the past, if you're doing just ordinary inflation targeting. And the Fed targets 2%, and many central banks do as well target 2%. Kind of the, the standard approach would be you aim for 2%, 2%, and let's say one quarter you you have you know 3%, or maybe you have minus 4%. You have something outside 2%. Well, with regular inflation targeting, you it's water under the bridge. You don't worry about it. You don't try to make up for it. You ignore it. It happened. You know, it's unfortunate, but you move on. With average inflation targeting, you're trying to correct for that miss. So let me let me do a simple example. You're doing 2%, 2%, 2%, and then you hit zero. So you're, you're two percentage points short of your target, which means then in the next period, you got to hit your, your current 2% plus make up for the two that you missed. So if you wanted to do it all in one year, you'd have to have 4% inflation. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, vice versa, if it's a negative number, and what this does is it it really nails down a, a price level path. So another way of saying this, maybe this is getting a little too wonky, but a regular inflation target could be viewed as a random walk. Mm-hmm. One period, you know, it jumps up, it goes down. 
And over time, now maybe over time you, you still hit 2% with a regular inflation target, but the price level path can be very different. With average inflation targeting, at least in theory, the price level path itself should be much better anchored than under an ordinary one. So average inflation targeting, another way of saying this, is a watered down version of a price level target where you do make up for past misses, whether above or below the target. Okay, great. Let me, as usual, say what you just said in different words to make sure the listeners get it. So right now, gasoline's $3 a gallon or whatever. You could you could say, okay, if prices rose on, in general 2% a year, obviously there's more to the price index than there's gasoline, but the idea being, or a basket of goods right now that costs $100. You could say 2% times 2% da, 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 da. in the year 2030, the price of that baskets of goods should be such and such. I'm not going to, I can't do the math in my head, but you know, 1.02 raised to that power. And you're with the old school way, the way they used to do inflation targeting. If you ever were short one year, you would then say, okay, assuming from this point forward, they hit the 2% target on point. Now our forecast for what's the price of that basket of goods in the year 2030 is going to be a little bit lower than what we originally said, because they missed it that one year. And now, Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if if we had unusually high inflation, then our target for the 2030 price level would be higher. And you're saying with if you were literally targeting the price level, then clearly, you know, no matter what happens, your forecast for the price of the basket of goods and service for the year 2030 is always going to be the same because that's literally the target. Yeah. And in practice, an average inflation target is the a similar type of thing. So I guess the issue is there when they say average inflation targeting, it has like a look back feature. It's not just saying from this point, looking 10 years ahead, we want the average to be such and such. Well, this is where we get into the critiques of their framework. So yeah, I mean, you need to define some parameters of this framework. So how far back do you look? How quickly do you make up for past misses? Mm -hmm. And this has all been rather vague. It's been one of my critiques. So you can infer things from different Fed officials, which isn't the way you, in my view, how you'd want to do this. In fact, one of my big critiques is, will this be credible? You know, will, will they stick to their guns? Because my concern was if, if you want to start a new regime altogether, you, you've got to be able to back it up. But, you know, when push comes to shove, inflation starts going above 2%. And, and there's already talk about this, you know, going forward, we're going to have an overheated economy. You know, we're going to have a temporary, you know, bounce above 2% at least. Will the Fed's see through that because according to this new framework they shouldn't care about that that above two percent because it should actually help bring the average up but that's a feature not a bug it's a feature not a bug yeah because you want to return to your 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 target you missed the past few years now but your point is it's a good one well how far back do we look like in my view you don't want to look back 10 years for example Mm -hmm. because by at some point you know markets do adjust people's yeah, you, you may have been surprised, you know, the whole creditor-debtor relationship that you've talked about, you know, if you have these unexpected changes in prices, there are going to be transfers of wealth between creditors and debtors that weren't planned. And maybe you want to correct that. Maybe that's one of the intentions of this policy. But if, if you're looking back a decade, clearly, you know, that's been sorted out by the market already. Mm-hmm. People have made hey, decisions. Hey, David, I'm sorry yes. to interrupt you, but actually it occurred to me, before we get into the critiques of the implementation, we should probably officially say, wh- why would anyone want to do that in the first place? Like, what, okay. what is the benefit of saying, sure, sure, rather than trying to always hit 2% per year, it's better to say our expectation of what the price level is going to be in 2030 
So let's keep that anchored. That's a better okay, well, thing you, you, to do. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. So go ahead. Like, why, why would having a stable expectation of the price level in 2030 be better than just saying our forecast of the yearly inflation rate between now and then is always 2% or whatever? Yeah, great question. And, and to be clear, you could have a 0% price level target too. So you could, okay, sure. you could have a, a flat one, like say during the gold standard. In fact, I made a quip. If you look at, you know, the U.S., you know, up till the end of its gold standard, but really up till, you know, maybe World War One, it looks like an average inflation target. Mm-hmm. Again, that's not quite right. But an average inflation target with a 0% inflation target as a part of it. Mm-hmm. The reason you would care why you or why you would want to, to do this is it creates more certainty about the future. So if you know that the Fed is going to credibly you know, guard where prices go or guide them on a 2% path, then it's easier to make plans for the future. I mean, if in fact it's credible and in fact the Fed does this, then many financial contracts, your mortgage, any, any kind of loan has an interest rate, there's going to be a term in that interest rate that's going to have embedded in it inflation expectations. So mm-hmm. you want to make sure that actually is realized. And wages as well. I mean, maybe wages are indexed to some measure of inflation. You can plan ahead both as a business, as a household, much better if there's certainty about the future. That's That would be kind of a maybe a basic reason for wanting to do that. Well, and more specifically, I mean, because either way, it's just a certainty about what aspect of the future. And so the, the thinking is right now, if I'm making, if I'm signing a mortgage or if I'm a worker taking, you know, agreeing to a long-term contract where it's going to be hard for me to, you know, lobby for higher nominal wages two years into it, it's more important for me to know what's the general prices of goods and services going to be in 2030 yeah. as opposed to what's the sequence of annual inflation rates. Like, I don't really care what the annual inflation rate is in the year 2030. I would much rather know right now when I'm making plans, what's the general level of prices in 2030 is is the thinking. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you take a mortgage out, you're making an implicit forecast about all of that, right? Right. And it's much, the argument is it's much easier to do that if you have, you know, much better price stability. I mean, you know, other another argument I think Larry White has made that in the past, when we had, you know, much greater price stability, it was easier for governments to issue longer-term bonds because mm-hmm. investors knew with more certainty that they could hold on to those without losing money from higher unexpected inflation. And just to reiterate what you said a minute ago, for the listeners who, you know, are gold bugs and don't, you know, I don't trust these central planning Fed officials, you're you're pointing out that, well, the nature of a, a long-term price level target actually is kind of like the gold snare, that there they were saying, you know, oh, an ounce of gold is $20.67, period. And, you know, the price level can go up and can go down, but in the long run, under the classical gold standard, it was roughly stable that, you know, what you yeah. what $100 could buy you in, you know, the year 1800 was kind of like 1840 or whatever, 1870, generally speaking, because of the gold standard. And so that's a version of what this is doing. Yeah, you can look at it as it's, it's trying to accomplish the same. And of course, you can critique it. And it's, mm-hmm. it's not quite the same, but that's the idea. It's in the spirit of something that a gold standard would produce. Again, albeit with a different, you know, target, you know, this modern age, people want to aim for 2%. Back then, it was closer to flat, 0%. Okay, so now that people understand, okay, this is what the thinking would be. Why would anyone even want to change it? Now you're saying in practice, though, okay, Jay Powell and other proponents of this, what does that actually mean? Because 
you know, when you say, oh, we're, we're going to target the average inflation rate. And so the in- intuition is, oh, so if yes, next year it's 6%, that means it's got to be lower than 2% going after that to kind of make it on average. But then the point is, okay, but what what time frame are we saying from the year 1900 to the present? We're always going to make that the same? You know, presumably not. And so it, it's not, a, that's not enough information to just say we're doing an average inflation target. You would need to know much more specifics before you could know what is the Fed going to do in practice? Yes. And and that's been my critique of the framework so far is that it hasn't been really well defined. It's There's a commitment that's been stated. And the one person who's probably done the most is the vice chair, Richard Clarita. He, he's he's fleshed out a few more details. Like he's, he said, for example, he wouldn't be comfortable uh, raising interest rates until we see at least a year of above 2%, given that we've been below. Mm-hmm. But that still leaves a whole lot of questions unanswered. Well, well, how how far back are you looking? Three years, two years, five years, and you know, at least a year, okay, but maybe more. Um, mm-hmm. So the parameters, I think, or the, th- the unknowns that would be nice to know to make this credible, at least in my view, is how far back do you look? And it can't be too far back because at some point people's plans adjust. And then secondly, how aggressively are you going to make up for the past misses? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's, it may be politically hard to do a real aggressive catch up because it might, you might see you know, 4% inflation and people aren't used to that. So maybe you got to kind of pace it out over time. But I think it would be nice to, to see it laid out. Now, what's interesting right now, there's this big debate that the bond market is challenging the Fed. So you see interest rates on long-term bonds beginning to go up. And many people are signaling that the bond market is questioning the Fed's ability to stick to its new average inflation targeting framework. And the reason why is you can look at long-term interest rates kind of as an average of a bunch of short-term interest rates. And the fact that they're going up and and they're going up in in a manner that would imply the Fed's going to have to raise rates sooner than they currently say they are. So there's there's just lots of questions. It's not well-defined. The bond market itself is questioning you know, the Fed's <laughs> commitment to this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I, I guess to your point, my critique would be, let's define this better if you want to make it credible and to work. Okay, so let me just follow up there. So I think most of us know that long-term nominal yields on treasuries have risen and then what I didn't know, though, specifically, is you're saying if you like figure out, OK, given that investors, you know, now have pushed up the yield on whatever, 10, 20 year treasuries, that implies they must think short term treasuries between now and the next 10, 20 years are going to be higher than they currently are. And that is at odds with what the Fed is. So the Fed's doing two things. It's announcing like this is what our inflation targeting regime is going to be like. But also, here's our forecast of what we think short-term rates are going to be like going forward. Yep. And you're saying the, what the bond market's doing in practice right now is implying that investors do not think the Fed's going to be able to stick to those forecasted short-term targets. Yeah, to give you a concrete example, the Fed has said in its forecast that they have this, it's called the Summary of Economic Projections, like four times a year it comes out with their, their meetings. And they've indicated they don't see themselves raising rates until after 2023. But if you look at the implied path of short-term rates in the treasury market, it shows some hikes in 2022. Mm-hmm. So the treasury market's like, ah, we don't, we don't buy this. And again, you know, you think of the treasury market, the bond market, these are guys who have skin in the game. You know, they're, right. they're, 
They're saying, look, we think inflation is going to be higher. We think world growth is going to be, we think things are going to change faster than you think. And you need to, you know, maybe come on board with us. Now, you know, the Fed can play this game with them for a while and, you know, until things maybe get really ugly. But to me, it's another data point that some clarity would be really nice now to, to make it clear what the Fed intends to do. Let me ask you this. Strictly speaking, if the Fed were dutifully following its average inflation target or any regime for that matter, are its own forecasts almost superfluous? Like technically, in other words, their forecasts aren't tying their hands, right? They're saying, no, what we're going to actually do, the way we're going to make decisions next year is according to this framework. Now we on the side happen to predict that what our framework will lead us to do next year is such and such, but strictly speaking, are their forecasts like not particularly relevant except just that might mislead people? Their forecasts are defined, and I should have said this earlier, but the, the summary of economic projections called SCP for short, these are the forecasts I'm referring to. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, They show everyone on the FOMC, which is the Federal Open Market Committee that gets together and votes on Fed policy. It shows everyone's forecast for key economic variables, including the ones in they control like the federal funds rate or their target. Mm-hmm. And but it's conditioned or it's it's given that this is appropriate monetary policy. So when they make these forecasts, they're saying this is what we think appropriate monetary policy would be. So they're saying, you know, so if you take that and then you take they have this new framework, you put them together, it does flesh out a little bit of their thinking, you know, and again, it's it's not there, there's questions even in their forecast. So for example, if you look at their summary of economic projection forecast for inflation, up until 2024, you only see 2% inflation. So if they're truly going to do makeup inflation, you would think somewhere between now and three years out, they would have above 2% inflation. But their own forecasts don't show that. So it's it's hard to, to reconcile everything in that forecast. Right. And so, some think the forecast creates more noise than signal. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that answered your question. Well, let me give you a goofy analogy. So like if if the people running the NFL said, you know, next year's Super Bowl, what we're actually going to do is let the the quarter have one more minute in length than we did previously. That's a new rule change. And by the way, we think the Buffalo Bills are going to be playing this other team in the Super Bowl next year. You know, the important thing would be this is what they're going to do in terms of the rules and how the game's going to be refereed. Their forecast as to which teams are going to be there and who's going to score how many touchdowns, who cares? what the NFL officials think about that. So long as they weren't actually, you know, rigging the rules to make sure their forecasted team gets into the Super Bowl. So I guess that's what I was trying to, that that was the distinction I was getting at is. Yeah, that's that's a good analogy. I think that's fair. Okay. But you're right. What you just said though, in response, that's curious. You're saying their own forecast shows they don't see higher than 2% inflation going forward. And since they had less than 2% previously, according to their measures, how can that, that's impossible. (laughs) Well, what's so I'm one of the few people who keeps pointing this out. Mm-hmm. Most people focus on their interest rate forecast. I think probably for obvious reasons because it affects you know financial markets and stuff. But I'm 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 one of the loud voices who's like, well, let's look at their inflation forecast. If you wait three four years before you start to catch up, I mean, is this really a any different than what you had before? Mm-hmm. And Governor Lael Brainerd, who's a pretty prominent member at, at the Federal Reserve. In one interview she mentioned, it was late last year, I believe, or maybe it was early this year, but she mentioned that she would like to see this um, process reviewed every five years. So let me step back. The average inflation targeting framework was was brought in as part of a review. And 
she said, look, it's, it's good to maybe do this every five years. The Bank of Canada does this every five years and has for a long time. We're kind of just catching up to them. And she said, but no, in five years, I want to sit down and see how we've done with this new framework. And I'm trying to put that statement together with the fact, well, they don't see any inflation above 2% three, four years out. So in her statement suggests she would see some traction before the five years are up. Right, right. But the SEP suggests we're not going to see a lot of traction before the five years up, at least in terms of inflation. Right. Again, others have focused on the low, low interest rate path they've set out there. Mm-hmm. But I think you got to look at everything if you're going to take this framework seriously. Okay. Can I ask you now, related to these issues, so when we say, oh, the bond market is forecasting higher short-term rates in the next few years than the Fed seems to, or at least what they publicly say they expect, is that because the bond, is there a way to disentangle? Is it because the bond shares think real economic growth is going to be better or that they think it's, no, it's purely price. I guess you could look at tip shields or something, but you see what I mean? Is it because the Fed's too pessimistic about the economy or because they're too optimistic about price inflation being mute? I think it's a bit of both. I I think they, they see some inflation picking up, but they, they definitely see some growth as well. So I, I think the bond market is saying in general, you know, you guys are being a little too modest in, in your forecast. Things are going to heat. You know, if I can summarize crudely, the economy is going to heat up and it's going to heat up probably more than you're thinking. And you will feel uncomfortable and, and maybe public pressure will be upon you to do something. And you will you know, increase interest rates before you think you'll have to. Okay. Folks, let's take a break from the discussion to remember that Nobel laureate economist who has a column the New York Times. That's right. It's our good friend, Paul Krugman. Believe it or not, Krugman has not reformed his ways. Arguably, he's become worse since Tom Woods and I discontinued our famous podcast, Critiquing Krugman, first weekly and then bi-weekly. But you know what? You can still recapture some of that zeal for truth and skewering that you came to love when you listen to the podcast if you go get the book, Contra Krugman. And to be clear, it's not a transcript of those episodes. These are columns that I wrote over many years critiquing Krugman. And there's a whole list of different subject areas. It's not just Keynesian economics. It's also climate change. All sorts of stuff is in this book. In fact, when I read the initial manuscript, you know, looking for typos and stuff like that, when I was done, I, I just thought, you know, should we just hang up the show here? Because what more needs to be said? I almost felt bad for him. It was, it was pretty brutal. And uh, at this point, we have stopped the show. So maybe it was prophetic. To get your hands on this book, go to ContraKrugmanBook.com. I think you're going to like it. So another big topic, and I know Selgin, I think he has a whole booklet on this, is the, was it called floored with an exclamation point or something? Yes. Um, yes. So this issue of the a floor system versus a corridor system. So can you with whatever level of detail you want to give it. Again, yeah. remember, keep in mind, some listeners might have sure. no clue what these terms even mean. So kind of just stepping back, what we were talking about is the a framework for the target, the, the conduct of monetary policy, what you're aiming to accomplish. That's this average inflation targeting framework. And and we mentioned earlier, I'm a fan of nominal GDP targeting. We, won't, we didn't get into that. We won't get into that. But there's different ways. And what should monetary policy be aiming to do? That's one question, and this is what the Fed's decided. Then there's a second question. Well, how does the Fed actually do it? What's the plumbing behind the Fed and how it conducts and aims for this broader you know, goal? 
And that's where the operating system comes in. And George Salgin, myself, and some others, we're fans of what we had prior to 2008. And in our point, the Bank of Canada still had, at least up until the pandemic, where the central bank keeps a small balance sheet and intervenes directly in markets. So let me, let me step back. We now have a floor operating system. Prior to 2008, there was a corridor operating system. A floor system breaks the link between the size of the central bank's balance sheet and the stance of monetary policy. And this is huge. Mm-hmm. So before 2008, that wasn't the case. Before 2008, kind of what your, your standard textbook would explain, you know, the Fed does open market operations. So it goes in and it alters the amount of reserves buys and sells securities, and that has kind of a direct mapping onto interest rates. So the Fed had to be an active trader to influence interest rates. Therefore, if it, you know, if it expanded reserves, if it bought assets, its balance sheet would expand or shrink in the same proportion to the stance of monetary policy. They were tied together. And this was this is actually good because it allowed the Fed to say, look, if Congress ever came to the Fed and said, hey, buy up a bunch of our bonds um, because we want to do some crazy endeavor, the Fed could say, look, we would love to, but if we buy them up, it's going to affect the stance of policy. And you don't want, and we have a mandate from you to do something else. With the floor system, you break that link. The Fed can massively expand its balance sheet without affecting the stance of policy. And that's because the Fed now is using interest on reserves as its key tool. And the, the Fed likes this and other central banks like it because if there's a, a crisis in banking, the Fed can inject lots of liquidity quickly to banks without affecting the interest rate that, that guides monetary policy. But the danger is people look at this and, and you mentioned George Salzman. He has a book called The Menace of Fiscal QE. It's like a piggy bank now that's very tempting to rate. If, if the Fed can expand its balance sheet without affecting the stance of policy and inflation, at least in the short run, it becomes very attractive for Congress to try to ask it to do something in addition to monetary policy. Because why not? You won't affect the stance of policy. Mm-hmm. Now, I would say there is some limit to this. At some point, the Fed's balance sheet uses up all fiscal spare space or capacity, and you will generate inflation even with this approach. But it creates the illusion and it it takes fiscal policy away from Treasury and puts it on the balance sheet of the Fed if it's misused. Okay. As always, let me take that yeah, and to try, to, <laughs> try to do the uh, the reader's guide to David Beckworth. And I, I'm just being facetious, obviously, oh, no, you're I saying understand. standard, but yeah. okay. So the most intuitive way I can, and this is kind of how I grasped like with the, with the distinction was, so in the fall of 2008, remember everybody, you know, there was this, a sensible crisis, you know, Hank Paulson's getting down on one knee begging Nancy Pelosi, we need to have a bailout of financial institutions. There's these mortgage, these toxic mortgage-backed securities, the world's collapsing in the financial sector apparently. And so, but also what people forget is that in the summer of 2008, gasoline prices and oil was, was real expensive, right? And so there were people yeah. actually, and I know this is something like Scott Sumner was, you know, having a heart attack over, was people were worried about excessive price inflation when in his mind, no, monetary policy was turning to be the tightest since the 30s, the way he measures tightness. So the Fed wanted to help the financial sector by like propping up the price of certain assets like mortgage-backed securities because they wanted to stop a fire sale, you know, a chain reaction going on there. So on the one hand, the Fed wanted to come in and buy up 
assets and take on the Fed's balance sheet. And so, and, but like you're saying, conventional monetary policy, like the way we would teach it to undergrads is, oh, if the Fed wants to cut interest rates, what it does is it goes into the open market and buys assets. And in that process creates new reserves that go into the banking sector. Then the banks can make more loans and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, because now there's the higher quantity supplied of credit, the price goes down and that's how, why it cuts interest rates yeah. and vice versa. If the Fed wants to raise rates, it sells off assets from its balance sheet and sucks reserves out. Okay. So the Fed didn't want to cut interest rates at that moment because they were still concerned about the price inflation, you know, from the oil and everything commodities in the summer. So the Fed wanted to buy a bunch of assets, but not cut interest rates. And since normally those two things are like the same lever that you push down on one, the other one goes up and vice versa. What they introduced there, they accelerated something they had been given permission. And that's in October of 2008, they brought in paying interest on reserves. So now the Fed told the banks, if you keep your reserves parked with us, rather than lending them out to customers, we'll pay you interest. And which was a new policy for the Fed at that point. And so that was what, what the divorce was. That's how they split it. So now the Fed can buy assets that creates more reserves but they keep it bottled up as it were. So interest rates don't need to plummet because if the Fed's telling banks, we'll pay you whatever, 75 basis points, banks are not going to lend out money for less than that because they've got it guaranteed yep. from the, so now the Fed can set a floor and this is the connection with floor versus corridor. So now the Fed can set an absolute floor. Interest rates cannot go below this because if we're guaranteeing this, why wouldn't people just keep their money right. parked with us? And now we can have the balance sheet be as big as we want and don't need to worry about interest rates getting pushed lower than we want because we've got this new tool. Yeah, that is correct. And it also implies the Fed's balance sheet is going to be bigger just on average. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Fed's going to have what they call an ample amount of reserves. So th this, you know, I mentioned the political economy concern it raises. The Fed's balance sheet now is as is tempting as a piggy bank for Congress to raid. But it also creates an, another issue, and that is, so many reserves are created under the floor system. And I know all your listeners are probably aware of this because you bring this up. The size of the Fed's balance sheet is, is large, quite a bit larger, which means banks are stuffed full of reserves. What the, the flip side of that is, though, the, the federal funds market is, is basically dead. And overnight money markets, unsecured money markets, are just eviscerated. There's a large overnight secured market, repo trading, but the old unsecured overnight market, that's largely gone. And that served a useful purpose. It led to price discovery. If, if banks were lending to each other on an unsecured basis, they would carefully monitor each other. So the Fed's footprint is larger because of the system mm -hmm. and its balance sheet is, is more tempting because of this system. Can you read, and I'm, I'm not saying this merely for the sake of the listener, I've forgotten myself. So I get what a floor system means that the Fed can just set a floor in interest rates by paying reserves at that level. Remind me the the corridor means it's not just one level. It's like a, you know, it's a, a band. So in a well-designed corridor system. So the one we had before 2000, it actually wasn't a well-designed corridor system. It was technically called an asymmetric one. Um, there was, there's actually a band of interest rate ranges even before 2008 what it was back then was zero. We paid 0% on reserves. So mm -hmm. there's zero would be the lowest you get on reserves. And the above would be the, the discount rate at the Fed. So in a corridor system, the upper interest rate is set by the rate at which you can borrow from the central bank. In the case of the US, the discount, mm -hmm. the lower bound is what you would get if you deposited at the Fed. Back then it was zero. Now it's positive. So just to be clear, you can still have interest on reserves paid and have a corridor system 
you just have to have interest on reserves paid at a lower rate than overnight market rates. So you'd have this band and overnight rates would be somewhere in the middle bouncing around and the lower bound would be interest on reserves, the upper bound would be the discount rate and market rates would bounce in between that. And so you would have healthy money markets again over, mm. that are unsecured. Bank of Canada is a good example. They probably have the best one in advanced economies. Okay, so in the old days, what we mean by a corridor system is that the Fed has a target for the federal funds rate. And that's the rate at which banks lend each other reserves on an overnight basis that are unsecured. Like, a, a, you know, one bank, it, it wants to make a bunch of loans because they have good applicants and you know, the credit department says, yep, these guys are good borrowing, good credit score. Let's make these mortgages or whatever. And then they say, uh-oh, if we do that, though, we don't have enough reserves to satisfy our reserve requirements legally. So we need to go borrow reserves from other banks to, you know, satisfy that. And that's what the federal funds market is. And the interest rate in that market is the federal funds rate that the Fed yep. targeted for a while. And you're saying, you know, the Fed could set a lower and upper bound around that where they want that thing to be. The lower one would be what they pay. So under the old system, it's zero. Nobody would ever lend reserves out at a negative rate because you could just keep it parked at the Fed for zero. So why would you right. lose money? But then also no one would ever pay more then what's the discount rate? And that is the rate at which the Fed would lend money to banks through the discount window. Yep. And so the Fed technically not, didn't merely have a federal funds target. And to be clear to everybody, the federal funds target rate, those are, quote, market rates that banks are charging each other. That's not the Fed directly lending. Yeah, it's an unfortunate name. <laughs> right. It's, yeah, right. Whereas the discount window is the if, if a bank goes hat in hand to the Fed itself and says, we need to borrow yep. reserves... And the Fed says, okay, we're going to charge you such and such percent on this loan. That's what the discount is. So again, if the Fed's standing ready and willing to lend at a certain rate, no bank would pay higher than that because you would just get it from the Fed. So that, so I guess my question is, even right now, though, there is a discount. Why isn't it a corridor system? Is it because the where they're setting that level? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let, let me just go back to another point you made. You can think of a corridor system that the top and bottom is administrated rates, mm -hmm. government controlled rates, and then the Fed funds is a market rate. And mm -hmm. we ideally want to go that path. So why isn't it now? Well, a corridor system will actually automatically collapse into a floor system if you just jack up the number of reserves because interest, what happens is overnight rates will come down to the, that bottom level, the floor of the corridor. Mm -hmm. This is where the labels get confusing. But interest on reserves right now is very close to overnight rates. If you look at repo rates, uh, other overnight federal funds, right? they're all very – LIBOR rates, they're all very close to where interest on reserves would be. That's what turns a corridor system into a floor system. And so, yeah, you still have the, the structure there that you could turn into a corridor system, but – but the Fed has effectively aligned interest on reserves rate with overnight market rates. If it look, if the Fed were to lower interest on reserves below overnight market rates, you know, significantly, that it became worthwhile to go out and find, you know, people in the marketplace, then you could trigger and go back to a corridor system. Now, that would be a, a very complicated process for the Fed today because there's just so many reserves. It's, they would have to drain a lot of reserves out of the system mm -hmm. before they could return. But let, let me give an example. The Bank of Canada, in the great financial crisis of so 2007 to 2009, as I mentioned, they had a corridor system, 
but they temporarily went to a floor system. They expanded their balance sheet. The, you know, rates all crashed down at zero. Like another way of thinking about this, when you're at the zero lower bound, these floor systems kind of automatically come, come into being. And the Canadian Central Bank expanded its balance sheet. But afterwards, they quickly drained their balance sheet and went back to a corridor system. So they showed it's possible. Mm-hmm. Now, I know Canada's not maybe the best compare. It's not fair. We have all these Byzantine regulations in the U.S. that make it hard for banks to dislodge some of their reserves. They have to keep it for regulatory purposes. But I always look at Canada as, as this ideal for a lot of things, their banking system, their monetary policy. Mm-hmm. And they're a great place to look for what a corridor system can be. Okay, so is this correct that, strictly speaking right now, the discount rate, namely the rate that the Fed charges banks if they want to directly borrow reserves from the Fed, is higher than the federal funds rate? Yes. So, so it's still it's still theoretically a core, but that's not really a binding constraint. The, it's not it's a the binding floor constraint. Is the binding, right. So that's what we mean when we say it's really a floor yeah. system, not a core. Okay. Yeah. Just think you you flooded the market with so many reserves that the supply is so large, it's it's forcing down overnight rates. Now, you can argue whether the Fed's following rates down or it's pushing them down. But but mechanically, the Fed has us in a place where overnight rates and interest and reserves are very close together. So therefore, they're almost equivalent. Mm-hmm. Okay. You just said something that I think is interesting. I'm curious for your thoughts. I know uh, from like 2009, 2010, people on the right typically were complaining, oh, look at this crazy inflation from the Fed and look, they're pushing interest rates down to zero and they're killing, you know, savers and da, da, da. Why would you save anything? Interest rates are basically there. And guys like Paul Krugman were saying the Fed didn't push rates down. Rates are down because we're in a liquidity trap and, you know, investment demand is whatever, terrible. And, you know, demographics and all these other reasons, secular stagnation. So he was saying, no, interest rates are zero because of market forces and the Fed just reflecting reality. It's not that QE pushed rates down. Do you have an opinion on that one way or the other? So I do think he makes a few points, although I wouldn't go all the way over. I think it's striking if you look today, for example, at the 10-year treasury. It's just over 1.5. It's had a hard time getting to 1.6. And you know, look at what just happened. We passed the $1.9 trillion fiscal relief package. Mm-hmm. And there's talk of more on the way. And you know, our, our debt to GDP ratio has gone, I think in 2000, it was 35%. Now we're over 100%, just over 100. And CBO is projecting up to 200. Despite all of these developments, Long-term treasury yields still are low by historical considerations, right. even though we talked about earlier they're, they're up a bit. And it's kind of a mind-blowing um, phenomenon. And the way I've come to reconcile this to make sense of it is, is that the U.S. And, and, and other advanced economies to a lesser extent, we, we're playing the role of like a banker to the world. The world is looking for these, these safe stores of value and if you look at if you look at the balance sheet of the U.S. economy, so we, you know, a lot of foreigners buy our treasuries, but they also buy commercial paper, they buy repos, they buy bank accounts. They're looking for places to park their fund that's safe and liquid. And you know, you can argue about all the problems we have, but the U.S. financial market is is the largest and it's the prettiest you know, pig in the pig pen, so to speak. And there's there's reasons why people are looking for these demographics. I do think demographics is an important role. The world is aging. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges we have going forward for our country and, and other advanced economies. Uh, the second reason they're, they're looking for safe stores of value would be many emerging markets. Their incomes have grown rapidly, but their institutions haven't kept up. So they look for 
other places to park funds for retirement, ends up being U.S. Treasuries. Also, new regulations coming out of the great financial crisis. I kind of alluded to this earlier in the, the corridor discussion, the operating system discussion. That's required banks and firms to buy to hold more treasuries as well as reserves. And then finally, you know, some argue that there's a, a generation of scarred individuals who've experienced the Great Recession, the Eurozone crisis, the pandemic, and they're going to be more risk averse moving forward. And all those things are contributing to this appetite for safe stores of value. And so I do I do think that's playing some role in, in keeping rates low. And that's why it's hard for the Fed to raise rates too. If you recall, Bob, back in it was 2018, the Fed was on a path to raise rates mm-hmm. and, and the economy started to weaken. And so they, they felt forced. And this is the case where the bond market was saying, you need to cut rates mm-hmm. and they backed down. So I, I do think we're in a different situation Slightly than maybe even you know back in the simple days of you know when the world was not experiencing all these developments. Can I ask you this? So I'll be honest, and people know I lost inflation bets to Brian Kaplan and David Henderson on this. If you had told me in 2005, here's what the Fed's going to do over the next 30 years, and here's what how much debt the Treasury is going to pile up, and as of 2021, what do you predict 10-year yields will be? my number would have been a lot higher than what it is right now. Like, oh, absolutely. And like, would yours have been too, like, isn't this? Yeah, in fact, I have a piece online when I first got to Mercatus. Um, I predicted 10-year treasury yield to be up to 4.5% soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so I was, I didn't appreciate this, the scope of, of, again, what I think is this demand for safe stores of value. And, and again, it, it's if you look at the US, US in particular, in fact, let me say, there's there's this joke I was once told. It was a joke, but I, I take it more seriously now. The U.S. is really good at exporting one thing, debt. Mm-hmm. The world wants debt, safe debt. And, the, and, you know, among all the entities on the planet, U.S. government will be the last one standing. So you can trust them the most, even though they're not, you know, necessarily the greatest. So I, I just think my appreciation for that wasn't where it should have been. And I, I think a lot of people, I mean, I think most people didn't appreciate that where we would be, like you said. And I, and the way I've un- reconciled this and made peace with it is there are big structural forces out there that are weighing on all of our economies. So, I, I mean, just for people to think through it intuitively, obviously, yes, people want, quote, safe debt. But then the issue is that as they keep piling on debt at an alarming rate, I mean, the the increase in the federal debt, the the last number I looked up from, the numbers I had was like from third quarter, what, 2019 through third quarter 2020 was a $4.2 trillion increase in the debt just in one 12-month period. Yeah, striking. And so at some point, though, like, when do people say, yes, I would love safe debt, but treasuries, I'm not sure that's <laughs> no, no, very it's, safe anymore. No, no, it's a anymore. great question. And, and so here, here's how I've, I've reconciled that, that, that tension. Mm-hmm. If, and because I've written on this, I have some, some papers on this. Um, if you look at the amount of liquid dollar-denominated assets that the U.S. exports to the world, again, treasuries is part of it, but people also buy other, there, there's a spectrum of liquidity. So, you know, commercial papers is, is liquid, but it's not as safe as treasuries. Bank accounts, they're pretty safe. All kinds, money market funds, there's all kinds of different assets you look at. But if you look at, if you go to the, what was used to be called the flow of funds or the U.S. financial account now, and look at what we owe the rest of the world, a disproportionate amount of our liabilities to the world are highly liquid assets. 
if you add all those up, and then if you go out and add on top of that, the Bank for International Settlements keeps track of dollar-denominated liabilities that are created outside the U.S. There's about $13 trillion. We're, we're looking at a number over $30 trillion in dollar-denominated assets held outside the U.S. And, and what's fascinating, there's this literature that shows whenever there's a crisis, that number grows. Mm-hmm. So like this year, uh, 2000, people are dumping their, their own relatively safe assets at home or their own you know, peso-denominated debt, and they're racing to get more treasuries or something like that, some substitute. So that just increases the demand. It, it lowers our interest rates. It makes it easy. It enables Congress to do more. In fact, there's, there's this trip and dilemma, which is kind of nicely summarizes this. The world wants the, the reserve currency's assets more than we need it domestically in terms of issuing debt. So my, my, here's my point. If you have 30 plus trillion, getting close to $40 trillion in dollar denominated assets held by the world, if they reach the point where they want, they want to run on it, run the dollar, mm-hmm. run on U.S. debt, where do they run to? If you're going to run on a bank, usually you have a good substitute, right? Mm-hmm. So where could we suddenly come up with something that large? Now, maybe it's, maybe it's I'm sure the crypto fan, oh, crypto will be the substitute, mm-hmm. you know? Or maybe it's it's gold, but it's just hard to see a mass exodus out of something so large. And so I I look at this as kind of path dependent. We're stuck in an equilibrium that's going to be hard to get out of. And in my view, if you ask, well, what would it take to get to that point? Two far-fetched scenarios. One, the U.S. breaks up. Something happens to the U.S., and two, you know, aliens from another planet with a bigger economy and better assets than we have, you have lands and we make contact. So it's- You I, anticipated I think, my joke. I was going to say, if the Vulcans show up and offer us dilithium crystals as a medium of exchange, then the dollar's done for. Oh, we're yeah. screwed. Yeah, we're screwed. But other than that, I, I think, and this, again, to me, makes sense of why we see such a huge run-up in debt, and yet long-term yields have not you know, the 10-year treasury yield is a benchmark global interest rate. And yet, and you look, look around the world, other advanced economies, I mean, Europe has even lower rates than we do. Now, again, some of that can be traced to their, their monetary policy. But in my mind, you can't attribute it all at the feet of, of the central banks. And, and even if you did, even if you said it was all central banks, at some point, central banks themselves, they can, when they buy up these assets, they're effectively expanding their balance sheet. They're taking fiscal capacity or fiscal space off, you know, the Treasury's balance sheet and putting it on theirs. At some point, if they buy too much, it's going to cause inflation and, and and things to go up, and it hasn't. And and so, you know, we have to wrestle with those those facts. And and, and my reconciliation is we're in a a dollar dominance equilibrium that's just hard to break. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think especially looking at the clock and now with the, the way the conversation has gone, it's a good segue into this last general topic. So the MMT people, and I've been grappling with them on Twitter, at least, primarily, they'll say, yeah, who cares, Murphy, that the debt went up $4.2 trillion? That's an arbitrary accounting measure. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't care about that because, and you don't have to worry about, oh, well, eventually, you know, there's crowding out and interest rates will go up. No, the Fed just sets interest rates. And the dollars are, you know, the dollars doesn't force the Fed to do anything. That's just a thing it issues. It's like a token or a, you know, a, a score in a, in a football game. It's not that the the referees of the game only have a limited number of points to distribute. And so if if you don't want interest rates to go up, just tell the Fed, don't raise interest rates. Problem solved. Well, you know, you guys are making this more complicated than it needs to be. 
So how do you feel about that? Just no, the Fed can just set interest rates. End of story. I've, ha- I've had that conversation as well. And, you know, it, it comes down to what's your theory of interest rates? And, in, in, you know, in, in Mac, kind of mainstream macro, there's two theories. There's what I would call the, the short run money theory or what the Keynes liquidity preference theory that in the short run, central banks do influence interest rates in the money markets. But then the, the long run view, the savings investment, you know, desired savings, mm-hmm. desired investment, which I think you and your listeners are familiar with, that is what ultimately shapes the long run path of interest rates. And you know, so my understanding is always, has always been, yeah, the Fed can tinker in the short run on the margins, but over the long run, there's realities they have to conform to if they care about price stability. If you care about price stability, then the fundamentals ultimately will drive what the Fed is doing. And what the MMTers and others, I'd say post-Keynesians in general argue, is that, and maybe this is the way I can reconcile their view with our view, they would argue that price stability mandate is a policy choice. So yeah, I mean, sure, the Fed could go in and try to pin every interest rate on the Treasury yield curve. And maybe it could for a while, but at some point it would cause inflation to go up. Now, and a good example of this would have been the 1951 Fed Treasury Accord. The reason the Fed broke from the Treasury, it had been supporting Treasury purchases from World War II up to the Korean War. And eventually prices began to go, inflation began to go up. And the Fed says, we don't want that. And it, it took some effort to break apart. And so I, if, if you care about price stability, then there is some, yeah, you could have zero interest rates across the entire yield curve. The Fed could pin rates all the way out to 10 years. At some point, that it would generate inflation. And I, I, I guess the issue to now, going back to our previous discussion, is I, I guess we just haven't hit that point. I mean, and, and what the MMTers, they see the past decade or two and say, hey, we can exploit this. We've got more fiscal space than we thought. We can pin rates longer than we thought. Yield curve control, which is something the Fed has discussed, would be a version of this. Mm-hmm. I'm not excited about that at all. I think it creates a whole other host of problems. But I, I believe the standard theories of interest rates still hold that in the long run, fundamentals determine where real rates will go. And if you care about price stability, you've got to respond to them. Okay, so just mechanically, just for people to think through what would happen and like how to reconcile what both sides are saying here. So investors at some point, let's say they start thinking, you know, I realize the treasury is saying we're going to give you, if you, if I lend them a thousand dollars today and they're telling me they're going to give me 1% interest every year for the next five years, I don't trust. I think they might default for one thing. So I actually, I need them to promise me a higher interest rate because I don't even know if I'm getting my money back. And so, you know, there's that element. And also as I start getting more concerned about what's the price level going to be like five years from now, you know, I'm getting more and more concerned that I don't know when, but between now and five years from now, I could see prices really starting to rise rapidly. And once the genie's out of the bottle, I think it's going to rip for a bit. And so, no, I need more than 1% a year. I need whatever, 8% a year to make me willing to give them $1,000 right now and wait five years for it. And if the Fed says, no, absolutely not, we can't let yields on five-year treasuries go to 8%, we stand prepared to buy those bonds to keep the yields at whatever, 1.3%, ultimately every five-year or whatever the relevant maturity treasury on earth, the Fed would buy it because no private investor would want to hold it at such a low yield and the Fed ultimately would have to buy them. So in practice, is that what would happen in the in the intermediate range is that the Fed would yes. ultimately take all and, that and, onto its own balance sheet? And just to follow through with, with that, that story is it would mean that they're 
issuing a, a, just a lot of bank reserves, mm-hmm. right? So now banks are sitting on these reserves. And if the true underlying fundamentals are much higher than you know 1.3%, other market rates will, will be reflecting this. And so banks will be looking at places to invest their funds. They may, and if the Fed doesn't want them to do that because that will generate inflation, they're going to have to jack up the interest rate on interest on reserves. So mm-hmm. they're in a bind. Either they, you know, either they're going to have to reward the banks to hold more reserves by increasing the interest rate on reserves, but then you're going to violate that that low peg. So at some point, when you use up all the fiscal space, you, you can only run so far from this problem. And, and maybe the problem is, is, you know, again, fiscal space is bigger than we thought it was. But at some point you will face higher inflation. Okay. And again, to reconcile the two, like they're both within their own frameworks saying true things. It's just, I think a lot of us who are critical of the MMT think they're, the general public doesn't fully get the problem. So I think the MMT people would say, right, that's what we've been saying from day one. The problem is not, can we afford this? Or is Uncle Sam broke? Or where are we going to get the money from? We created electronically. Duh, that's where we get the money from. There's no constraint on how many dollars. Yes, if we hit resource, real resource constraints, if once we hit full employment, once real GDP equals potential GDP or higher, prices start rising. And so what you guys are pointing out is, no, if we pin interest rates and that doesn't accord with the fundamentals, we'll see runaway price inflation. That's what we MMT people have been saying all along. The constraint is inflation, not you know, affordability or, you know, do we have the the money to pay for the Green New Deal? First of all, do you, do you think that is kind of yeah, what think, they would I say? I think okay. that's fair. And then and then another element to this is you and I would would take a more quantity theoretic view of inflation, that money is dri- ultimately driving inflation or is that how often we spend money is mm-hmm. driving inflation. And therefore, the solution would be to deal with it head on, pull back the amount of money in creation, do something mm-hmm. about that. MMTers are post-Keynesians, and post-Keynesians have a different view of inflation. They view it's a power struggle between labor and capital. And so for them, the solution to higher inflation is wage and price controls. Getting in, I mean, so maybe we do end up at the same destination, but our policy proposals are very different. They Mm -hmm. would do wage and price controls, which I think is very clear, has not worked out in history. If you look, um, I mean, you could argue it's a few more time, maybe, but I think it's pretty clear they don't work. And you have to do the hard work of addressing all the government liabilities you've created and, and, and trying to pull them in through mm-hmm. different different approaches. So, And another thing, to, like, from the Austrian perspective, for sure, is that interest rates are prices. And so the idea that you just, you know, say, no, well, the Fed just sets whatever interest rates it wants. And then that, you know, the problem might get pushed off into some other arena. But that's, like, to me, that seems very glib and you know, like, oh, just the Fed could set, you know, set the price of oil at whatever it wants. And so the, that's an interesting question, because I recently was looking at Milton Friedman and I've been talking to some people, you know, that there's a question, how should the government finance itself? Should it have long term bonds, short term bonds in between? And of course, right now it has you know, a whole spectrum. When the Fed buys up the debt like it has been, it's effectively turning longer term debt into short term overnight the reserves right now are effectively overnight reserves with, that pay the interest rate. So you're just substituting one government liability for the other, but you're shortening it overnight. Milton Friedman, interestingly, in 1948, he had a very different vision of the world back then. He argued that the entire stock of bonds, government bonds, should eventually be liquidated and turned into reserves, hmm. which is a very MMT view. In fact, I was I interviewed Ed Nelson for my podcast. 
he's written these, these books and, and he said, look, Milton Friedman, 1948 and Abel Lerner were very similar, their views. And so why would you want to do that? Why would you want to have the entire public debt structure as overnight liabilities? And that gets into the question of public finance. What's the best way to find, are you going to, does it make sense to have long-term debt and lock in low rates so you can find the Green New Deal? Mm-hmm. Or do you do overnight? And and there's there's two can, interesting- Can I ask arg- you, Dave, just to make sure, yes. like, so was he basically saying if the government wants to run a deficit, it should just monetize it? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Now, he, he was he was careful. He said, it, it, you know, it should be counter-cyclical macro. You don't want to do it all the time. But when you do it, in the limit, there should be no government bonds. It should all be reserves or some mm-hmm. currency, obviously, too, as a part of that would come out. But yeah, it was pretty striking so, to see but that. Did, yeah, so he wasn't saying it would be painless or anything. He was saying and, and not that, oh, yeah, just go ahead and run deficits and monetize it. What's the big deal? But he's saying, ideally, if for whatever reason we do decide as public policy, we want to spend more than we are willing to tax this period, the optimal way to, quote, finance that is just go ahead and run the printing press. Yep. Is that correct? Okay. Yep. That's correct. 1948. It's an AER article. It's really striking. And and again, that is very post-Keynesian. Very Because mm-hmm. think of it, if, if all the debt is reserves in the zero lower bound environment, it'd all be, it'd be, you'd be pegging rates at zero right. effectively. Now, eventually, if the economy heats up, you'd have to increase that if you don't, if you want to deal with inflation. But it's, it's striking. And so I've heard, you know, um, the argument I've heard for doing something like this, which I, I, I don't buy into, but it's just interesting to consider, is that the spread between short-term debt and long-term government debt is a spread that Wall Street, the private sector, is using. You know, banks intermediate, you know, and they're getting that spread. And if government did it, it would effectively take all of that seniorage or profits and bring it back to the federal government. That's the argument. And, and that's why it has a very much a post-Keynesian appeal to it. Um, but I, I I don't think that's a good theory or, or way to think about public finance. So I I know I've heard this is dovetailing with, I argue with, uh, his name's Rowan Gray a lot. He's a, a law professor. I forget where. Um, and he's a huge MMT guy. And I think, if I'm not misquoting him, that yeah, he threw out at some point that he thinks long-run interest rates should be very close to zero, if not zero. I mean, he might even be zero. And I know there's some economists, and I don't know if I have a learner said that, but there is this train of thought, you know, Keynes with his liquidation of the rentier or whatever, euthanasia, I guess was the term he used. (laughs) Uh, Not for the the person, but like the class economically. Um, There is this idea that positive interest rates are a reflection of power structure and like it doesn't do anything good for us. Like it's, and I I don't know, do do you want to comment on that? I think it's misguided. I think there's a good reason for long-term interest rates. We have good expectation theory with term premium. If people, if you want to lend long-term, there's added risk. <laughs> You've got to be compensated for. In some projects, you need long-term debt. I mean, you you have to have long-term debt, you know, for long-term projects, factories, capital, insurance companies, you know, life insurance companies. They got to have they have long-term liabilities. You got to match it with long-term asset. There's plenty of good reasons to have long-term safe stores of value, U.S. Treasury bond. And if you get rid of that, now, I, I don't know, maybe they would say the private sector would come up with some substitute, maybe so. Um, but I think it would be a huge shock to the current system. Okay. And then if I could just ask you one final question, just in sure. general, so a lot of what you're doing here in your your work and whatever, and your, your arguments on Twitter and whatnot is like, oh, the Fed's doing such and such, but actually, wouldn't it make more sense to do X, Y, Z? And to, so it, what is your, like, a lot of, certainly Rothbardians 
you know, their ideal thing is, you know, just like I don't want the government involved in car production, why the heck would I want the government involved in money production or regulating banking? Sure. Ideally, I'd want a free market in that stuff. And and so for, can you just comment on like, what's your my vision of the I, world. ideal thing? Like, are you just compromising yeah. given well, the I'll, system? I'll say, first off, I'm mm-hmm. convinced by George Selden's work on free banking. I think in a, an ideal world, we would be in a free banking system. But mm-hmm. I don't think we're there. I think we're a long ways from that. And, and so that's not a hill I want to die on. So given we are where we are, so it's a very pragmatic answer. Right. I, I want the Fed to be more rule-like, predictable, and to have the right target. And for me, that would be a nominal GDP level target. It would also mean going to a, we talked earlier, corridor operating system and, and to have a, a minimal amount of intrusion. In my, my vision of the world, the Fed does nominal GDP targeting seamlessly such that we don't even think or we, we think far less about what the Fed's doing. We don't have Fed pundits. We don't have Twitter fights about what Fed policy is. We, we focus more on the underlying structural real problems, the microstructure issues. Um, that would be my vision. And, and you know, it's, it's a long way there, but that's how I would view the world on a pragmatic level. All right, one more follow-up on, on that just to get your... So I've heard people say, oh, yeah, and Scott Sumner talks like this, I believe, to say something like, yeah, what we don't want is for the Fed, through its own monetary policy, to introduce more distortions on top of just stuff that might happen in terms of the real economy, you know, like people made mistakes during the housing bubble or, or boom. Yeah. And, you know, there could be a shock to agriculture if there's a famine or, or sorry, a drought, whatever. What you don't want is on top of those real things that humans can't control very well to have just, you know, an unforced error coming in by the monetary authorities. And so exactly. that's why he would say you want long run level targeting of NGDP or whatever. But so in your mind, though, is it is it truly the case that you could have even a central bank and all, and if you had the right policy, then it really would be neutral? Or are you saying, oh, it, no matter what the, the central bank does, its existence is going to distort things. You're just trying to minimize the damage? Or is it really, no, yeah, if, they, I mean, if it did I, it right, it wouldn't be a big deal. I think there's no way to get around the fact that there's going to be some, you know, deviation from some textbook ideal of a free market system when you have a central bank. There, you know, what assets it purchases, and we didn't get into this, but there's different views on what what is a neutral asset purchased by the central bank, you know, and it, mm. there's different visions of this. And, and so, yeah, I don't think you'll ever be no effect, no distortion, but you want to minimize it. You absolutely want to minimize it. So you mentioned the housing bus. Let me just, if I can, and add that little example. If you go back to the Great Recession and you see housing actually begins to contract in I think, April 2006, mm-hmm. and it's contracting, 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 but it's not until late to middle 2008 and on where you see the massive collapse in the economy. And what's interesting is, is nominal GDP was, rel- the Fed was doing a relatively decent job up and not perfect, but relatively mm. decent job. And so I would argue that's the kind of world you, 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 if you have sectoral problems, they have to be worked out sometimes painfully, but the overall economy, you want to keep it stable. Something happened in 2008 that turned maybe a garden variety recession into a great recession. And that was a major monetary policy error. We want to avoid those. Okay. Okay. And you think, so, so what, what is your, are you an NGDP level targeting guy? Is that your? Yeah, I'm a level targeter. I, I, I think for the reason it's, it leads to better risk sharing um, between creditors and debtors and less financial dislocations. And do you, do you have a preference as to what the, is the level implying a 0% path or is that not so much important just that there is a level path? That is a long conversation, oh, Bob. Okay. 
I, I would. <laughs> that I was would, unfair I would, to voice you in the last. Well, second. no, I mean it's a great question. So here's here's an easy answer. You'd have to flush it out to really get to the heart of this. I would have nominal GDP grow at a rate equal to the expected growth rate of all the factor inputs. Um, okay. This is a version of George Selden's productivity norm, but okay. that to me is like the ideal. But I think in practice, you know, I, I would, I would aim. And in fact, I have something up called a nominal GDP gap. And what it is, it's it's a forecast of the public via you know forecasters, if you want to, it's a consensus forecast of where they think nominal GDP will go. And and so my pragmatic answer to your question is, we should aim to hit where the market thinks nominal GDP is going, because that's where contracts were based. That's where leases are signed. And you want to meet those, ex- you want to guide that, but you want to meet them as well. So you'd have to do something probably a little more, you know, practical. You, you wouldn't want to jump into the deep end of a productivity norm. You'd want to you know, tip your toes in the shallow end of nominal GDP targeting first. Okay. And so once we hang up, like you can send me something on that. Like if people want to read like what your actual preferred. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So why don't we thank you. We'll, we'll stop there. So folks, Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 197, and I'll have a bunch of links to the stuff David and I have talked about. My guest has been David Beckworth. David, thanks so much for your time. Bob, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.